Greetings, brethren, brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. I want to talk about God's planned love and developing love. You know, what's the faithful Christian church really all about? Is it simply uh, being part of a certain organization or corporation? Uh, you know, within 25 hours of the formation of the Continuing Church of God, I posted that it was really all about love, the give way of life. And yes, rules like the Ten Commandments, which we'll talk about, are important. But what's the most important? Well, according to Jesus, the Apostles, uh, the Worldwide Church of God, and the Continuing Church of God, love is what's more important. But many people don't understand about the love of God or how to develop more of it. God's plan involves love. We've got a lot of scriptures I want to go to. First, we'll start off with one that's uh, fairly well known. This is John uh, 3.16. So you may want to follow along. Uh, I intend to be using the New King James Version of the Bible most of the time. But sometimes when I'm quoting old uh, Church of God literature, like from the Worldwide Church of God, they use other translations, and they don't even say which ones sometimes. So anyway, let's go to John 3, uh, starting verse 16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we see it was based upon love. And understand that, you know, God the Father and Jesus, the Word, existed for eternity. And the Father was willing to give up his eternal companion for us because of, because of love. Now, I want to go to the next part here, where it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, this is one of the many ways that the uh, uh, continuing Church of God differs from Protestantism. And I'm going to hold up several books, and one of them right now is called Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism. You can see it's a fairly thick book. This one, or any other one that I hold up, is available at this www.ccog.org website. Uh, go to the literature tab under books and booklets and you'll find it. But it's not just the Protestants who don't quite get it. If, um, the the Greco-Romans uh, don't as well. And that basically the Protestant faith condemns pretty much everybody who ever lived, or the vast majority of people ever lived, to suffer forever and they seem to think this is how a God of love should do things. And within the Greco-Roman world, you got a couple different ideas. Within the Greek Orthodox, they actually understand that uh, since God is love, he has, a, he has a plan of salvation that they suspect, they don't know, but they say they suspect, might work all the way up to the time of the last great day. In this particular book that I'm holding up, which is not quite as thick as a Protestant book, but it's got uh, many, many, many scriptures, explains that a God of love does have a loving plan. Okay, so don't think that most people you've ever seen are going to fry forever and the God of love is just doing this and it's just love. A lot of people do not understand God and that God truly is love. From John 3, 16 and 17, we see that God's plan is based upon love and this love involves not going out just try to condemn everyone, but give an opportunity for everybody to be saved, which again, which we have a free booklet 
universal offer of salvation. By the way, we do not teach that everybody will be saved, but that all will get an offer for salvation. And we also believe that most will take it, either in this age or the age to come. Love is God's basic motivation for everything. And you're important, and God loves you personally. And he does have a plan for you personally. I don't think because the tests and trials have come upon you that God doesn't love you. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, let's see. I'll read verses 11 and 12. None of us like certain tests and trials. Proverbs 3. We get partial explanation here. My son, sorry, verse 11, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. So if you're going through tests and trials, say, wait a second, other people aren't going through this. Why do I have to, this God doesn't love me enough or understand. No, God does love you in this way, he's doing it. Now let's go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. Because this idea about being chastened is actually consistent in the Old and the New Testament. Hebrews 12, I'm going to start reading with verse 5. And if you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, my son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who have corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For indeed, for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them, but he, that's God for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness, which includes love. So don't think God's not loving you when you're going through tests or trials, particularly if they last decades, or whatever period of time they may be. Verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Yes, sometimes... We've got to long endure various matters to better develop love. Let's go to Second uh, Peter chapter one. The apostle Peter wrote, starting in verse five. But also for this very reason, gather, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance. Put up with things that are going on. To perseverance, godliness, and we know God is love. To godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, so just think, oh, sometimes I'm a little bit kind. Uh, sometimes I have some self-control, and sometimes I can be patient or long-suffering. Uh, again, you want these things to abound. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want love to abound. 
Now, patience is a sign of love. And I want to go just read something from uh, Psalm 37. Uh, I'm going to read two, part of two verses. And when you're enduring lots of trials, consider this, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Now we'll go down to verse 7. Rest in the Lord, or be patient, if you will, and wait patiently for Him. Those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. Yes, there's a reward for patient love. And that love is not just toward God, but toward others. That's not just God you're supposed to love. Let's go to Mark uh, chapter 12. And we'll start in verse 28. Planning on reading a fair amount of this, so you may want to turn over there. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, that's Jesus, what's the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, this is the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. This is the first commandment. But notice Jesus didn't just stop there, because which he could have. He said, "What's the great? You know, what's the first command of all?" And Jesus gave it, but Jesus decided make sure he understands the second part here. The second is like it: you shall love your neighbors yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Verse 32. So the scribe said to him, "Well said, teacher. You've spoken the truth. There's one God. There's no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, all the understanding, all the soul, all the strength, and all." and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw he answered him wisely, he said to them, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So he understood parts of it. Now how do you love your neighbor? I'm going to kind of skim over, skim read if you will, some things from uh, the old... Uh, uh, Worldwide Church of God. This is from the Good News Magazine, uh, uh, July of 1982, from uh, El Saravia, who I think I met. I, I know I saw him in person, so I think I met him. And he says, a godly perspective, or he writes, is that we must want the best for our neighbors as well as ourselves. Now, it's one of the problems I've got with Calvinism is just that they think that there's nothing else God decide who he's going to save. Everybody else is going to burn forever. That's one of the reasons I held up with this booklet. We want the best for our neighbor. And God knows whether it's best for people to be called now or in the age to come. Anyway, the old worldwide church guy wrote, the best for our neighbor is that he or she becomes a member of the family of God. And then we agree. With this perspective, we should be determined not to, uh, to harm our neighbor. We're not really supposed to be in competition with him or her. Jesus Christ, who gave God's commandments to physical Israel, magnified the spiritual laws in the New Testament. And he says, for example, take the sixth commandment, you should not kill. How does it apply to loving your neighbor? Well, Jesus said, you're not even supposed to hate, detest, etc. with your neighbor. We should uh, express love to our neighbor in everything we do. We should always keep in mind our neighbor's potential and God's plan. 
Then he says another commandment, ten, uh, the Ten Commandments, you should not commit adultery. Spiritually, we're not even supposed to lust after our neighbor. Consider, can we break God's commandments concerning adultery with our neighbor when God's preparing that neighbor just like us for his family? And of course, there's the other commandments as well. All these commandments were magnified by Christ himself. They reveal how we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Keep the commandments hinges and remember that membership in God's family is intended for every human being. Every human is our neighbor. And one of the other reasons this booklet here is called Hope of Salvation, and the regular title, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism, is that Protestants don't understand uh, God's plan of salvation. They don't have hope for those who uh, uh, they don't believe did whatever they're supposed to do with Jesus in this age. Now I realize there's some exceptions and Protestantism is pretty broad, but in general, Protestants have most people who ever lived condemned. Uh, as far as the Ten Commandments go, before I go any further, we do have a free book online on the Ten Commandments that goes into each of them in some depth. Now, our neighbors have the same desires and needs as we have. Do we get hungry? Well, so do our neighbors. You know, how many people do you know who can't provide for their families? Uh, this could be due to uh, stress, sickness, unemployment, various other issues. If we've got food, we should uh, learn to share with those in need. And again, reading this from uh, Ellis article, or skimming over it. So this is loving our neighbor. The same also applies to basic necessities like shelter and clothing. We must learn to share the blessings that God gives us. How else can we manifest true Christian love toward our neighbor? Are you even aware of someone's pain or agony? Do you know someone suffering sickness or disease? Do you know anyone who suffered an injury in an accident? Their physical needs may also already be taken care of. What about their spiritual needs? God expects us to care and to give comfort and solace. When we comfort others, we express God's love. We all need the love of others expressed to us, and we must express the same love toward others. When our neighbors... Uh, honored by uh, an appointment at some office or rewarded for some accomplishment or being promoted or whatever, uh, uh, we are to be honored as well. And you know, we don't consider that our neighbors are just in competition and we have to do better than the Joneses or keep up the Joneses, which is an American expression. Anyway, we have uh, tests and trials and so do our neighbors. When Jesus was undergoing tests in this life, he was praying. He was also uh, praying for Peter, even though he was about to be killed, and that was selfless love. In Luke 22, verse 31 and 32, Jesus instructed Peter, "When you're converted, strengthen the brethren." And um, he said, "Peter was already the chief apostle, all this kind of stuff." And, Jesus said he were, still wasn't converted. This is before Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit uh, was given to him. Anyway, the article says this type of love we should manifest for our neighbor. The same as loving God, God actually puts himself in the place of our neighbor. Whatever we do with our neighbor, we're actually doing to God. And you can, Jesus told a parable about that in, uh, over in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. Sheep and the goats. Do we always consider as we deal with other human beings that we're doing to God whatever we do to that person? 
Now let me go even further. You, if you travel at all, like you say you drive to work or drive to shop or go shopping or do all, do do things, you may see lots of people in the day. Now I I realize that during the whole COVID stuff, people have seen less people, but you still may see a lot of people. You realize that every single one of those people could be your boss, if you will, in the kingdom of God. Yeah, but, well, but they're not like me. I I you know I keep the Sabbath and I don't eat unclean meats and I keep the holy days and all this kind of stuff. And that's good. And you may have a greater role in the kingdom of God than they are going to have. But maybe not. Jesus says some of the last will be first and the first will be last. And there's so many people. There's so many neighbors. And this article cites uh, 1 John 4, 20 and 21, which I'll probably read later, but basically I'll just read it from this part. It says, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother who he has seen, how can he love God who he hasn't seen? And the command we have from him that he who loves God loves his brother also. Our neighbors, each and every one of them, are made in God's likeness and are to become God's. And they cite Psalm uh, 82 verse 6 here. So now do we begin to see the importance God places on relationship between human beings made in his likeness. Every human being is a potential member of the God family. You must not do anything to deter our neighbor from fulfilling God's purpose in his life. So we should lead proper lives as examples so the, the way of God does not get blasphemed and people fall away. Jesus warned about those uh, who are unnecessarily offensive. Anyways, this must be the underlying premise which we base everything toward our neighbor. Then he cites Luke 6.31. As you would have men should do to you, do them to them likewise. Then he cites 1 John 3.14. We know that we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. If we can do this, we're perceiving our neighbor from God's point of view. This then is loving your neighbor as yourself. Now let's go to the writings of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 13. This is called the love chapter. I'm going to read the first four verses from uh, the New King James. Starting, excuse me. Starting with verse 4, I'll read a few verses from New King James, and I'm going to read it from uh, a different translation. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, of course, by believing all things, it means things that are true, and truly believing them. Now, I'm going to read this from the Berean Literal Bible, starting verse 4 as well. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious, it is not boastful, it is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek the things of its own. It's not easily provoked. It keeps no account of wrongs. It does not delight at unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now skip down to verse 13. Now the three of these abide. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. Now I'm going to go back to the writings of the Apostle John. Let's go to uh, uh, 1 John 4, 
starting in verse uh, 7. And one thing I wanted to hold up here was, you know, frequently I talk about uh, history of the Church of God and that we trace ourselves through the Apostle John, who probably wrote the most about love. He and Paul both wrote a lot about love. Anyway, we trace our history of succession through the Apostle John, from Peter through John. Peter and Paul through John. Anyway, John, 1 John 4, starting verse 7. Beloved, let's love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that God, that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in his love abides in God and God in him. If people are not abiding in God, they're really not abiding in love. Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love, we love him because he first loved us. That was part of the plan. Verse 20. If, God, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Well, I will assure you, I get emails from people, let's say that I'll call them Laodiceans. And they don't really love their brother. They think they do, and they think they love God, but they'll latch on to certain, I'm going to call them private interpretations of scriptures, or personal interpretations of scriptures that they think is more important to do than doing any type of love. Now, we don't ask people who have uh, certain views, uh, let's say, twig issues. We don't tell them that they have to give up their twig issues in order to support the work of God. Uh, unless it's just so blatantly, obviously wrong. But now they stick on and say, no, only a church that teaches what I understand is obviously doing what God wants, and God is happy with me to be by myself and not support doing what needs to be done. Um, I'm not saying people are supposed to compromise, but I'm saying that these people don't truly have Philadelphian love. You know, love is the greatest attribute. Again, I've read that from uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about love between men and women. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 4, to admonish young women to love their husbands and to love their children. And in Ephesians 5, starting verse 22, I'll let you go over there. 
I'll read a little bit about this. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so that wives be subject to their own husbands in everything, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing by water, by the word, that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body of flesh and of and of his bones. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall be one flesh. Now, if we continue to the next verse, we see Paul ties him to the church. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This points to the fact that the relationship between Jesus and the church is based on love. I want to read uh, from Hebrews chapter uh, 11, uh, starting verse 39. talks about these all, having obtained good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And those days included men and women. You know, sometimes... With, based on uh, Greek grammar rules, we seem to use masculine genders a lot. But the plan of love involves both males and females. Now I'd like to read uh, Romans chapter 8, starting verse 16. Now I'm going to read this from the AFV, because it actually gets uh, one pronoun correct here. Romans 8, starting verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness conjointly with our own spirit, testifying that we're the children of God. Now, if we are children, we are also heirs, truly heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer together with him, so that we may also be glorified together with him. Both men and women had faith and are heirs to the promises equally. Both men and women can be made perfect, and this will be better for us. And for what purpose? In order to give love a unique way throughout eternity to make eternity better for ourselves and everyone else. I want to read 1 Thessalonians 3.12. You don't have to go there. But the Apostle Paul wrote, Christians said, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Whether you're male or female, humans are intended to give love in order to make eternity better. And we have a free booklet on that as well, The Mystery of God's Plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? Available again at the ccog.org website. Now, I want to go to the 119th Psalm. I'm going to read some passages that uh, David, the psalmist, King David, uh, wrote. And I'm going to uh, kind of skip over certain verses, uh, just for the sake of time. Okay, going to verse 47... And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. 
My hands also lift up your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Do you love God's commandments? Do you actually fully understand them? Hopefully you do. And we could always know, learn more. David was meditating upon them as well. We have a book that I'm holding up on the Ten Commandments. Now let's get down to verse 97 of the 119th Psalm. Oh, how I love your law. This is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, just in fine gold. Uh, on this thing about uh, God's acting, and they regarded God's law as void, you can see this happening in countries such as the United States, who used to at least have some semblance of certain aspects of biblical morality, and now they've gone against that. In verse 159, David wrote, Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Now I want to go down to verse 163 and read a few verses. I hate and abhor lying. Hopefully you uh, hate sin. We did a recent sermon on that. But I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law. And nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation... And I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly, and hopefully you do. You should love God's commandment as well. Now, so that's all Old Testament stuff. But let's go to 1 John chapter 5. And read something from the Apostle John, starting in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot will also also loves him who is begotten of him. For this we know we, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Yet various Protestants do teach that they are burdensome. And so I'm holding up these two books. This one's just the Ten Commandments. This is a lot of stuff about Protestantism that... If you're a Protestant and you haven't read this, if you are willing to believe the Bible and willing to accept chasing your correction from the Word of God, you really should study this book. Again, it's free. It's ccg.org. Now, I mentioned about John being a disciple of love, but I'd like to read something from uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, who is a disciple of John. Um, this is not in the New Testament. This comes after the New Testament. Uh, this is from his letter to the Philippians. Polycarp wrote, I have greatly rejoiced with you in the Lord Jesus Christ because you followed the example of true love as displayed by God. Polycarp also wrote, He who raised him from the dead will raise us up also if we do his will and walk in his commandments and love what he loved keeping ourselves from all unrighteousness. So we're supposed to love what he loved. Going further down, Polycarp wrote, If you 
carefully study, you will find the means of building you up in that faith which has been given you, and which, being followed by hope, and preceded by love towards God and Christ and our neighbor. Polycarp also wrote, Let us teach, first of all, ourselves to walk in the commandments of the Lord. Next, teach your wives to walk in the faith given to them, and in love and purity, tenderly loving their own husbands in all truth, and loving all others equally in all chastity. So yes, uh, not only did Paul teach about love, and Jesus taught about love, and various ones in the New Testament talked about love, and the Apostle John, but their successors did as well. Now, I read from Polycarp. Now, I'd like to read something from the late pastor general of the old Worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong. This is from his book, The Mystery of the Ages. True religion, God's truth empowered with the love of God imparted by the Holy Spirit, joy unspeakable of knowing God and Jesus Christ, knowing the truth, and the warmth of God's divine love. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his face, the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And what was Jesus' appearance? It was that of a human man, for he was also the Son of Man. Most important of all is what is God's nature, his character is like. You can't know what God is unless you know what his character is. The character of both God the Father and Christ the Son is that of spiritual holiness, righteousness, and absolute perfection. Character might be summed up in one word, love. Defined as an outflowing loving concern. It's a way of giving, way of serving, and sharing. Not the way, not the get way. It's the way devoid of coveting, lust and greed, vanity and selfishness, competition, strife, violence and destruction, envy, jealousy, resentment, and bitterness. And sadly, there's many out there who are bitter. God's law is spiritual. It can be summed up in one simple but all-inclusive word, love. His law for the guidance of human conduct is subdivided into two great commandments, love toward God and love toward neighbor. These, in turn, are subdivided into the Ten Commandments. Jesus magnified this law by showing how its principle expands to cover virtually every possible human uh, infraction. Bear in mind that the government of God is based on the law of God, which is the way of life of outflowing love, cooperation, concern for the good being governed. Full comprehension of God's law, His way of life, is imparted by God through His Holy Spirit. But the law of God requires action and performance. And love is fulfilling of God's law. It can be fulfilled only by love of and from God. The plagues God caused against Egypt, God was turning Egyptian gods and objects of worship against them to show that these were not gods. Even the plagues were sent in love to the Egyptians. Again, God has a plan for everyone to those who were called either in this age or the age to come, which would include uh, uh, those Egyptians. A Christian must grow in grace and develop it in spiritual knowledge and godly character, showing more love and outgoing concern toward others. The very basic teaching, belief, and doctrine of God's true church, therefore, is based on righteousness and obedience to the law of God. You mentioned about the true church. We have a book of where is a true Christian church today. That law is love, but it's not human love. 
Human love cannot rise above the level of human self-centeredness. There must be the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. Ancient Israel couldn't really obey God's law. They could keep it according to the strict letter of the law, but since love's a fulfilling of the law, they only had human self-centered love. They could not keep the law according to the Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given. That was on some of the, in the Old Testament. This basic teaching includes, therefore, all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, etc. The teachings of God's true church are simply those of living by every word of the Holy Bible. This is one of the reasons why I've held up this book for Protestants, because we contend that Protestantism does not do that, and I think it's very easy to prove. In the kingdom of God, humans are going to turn from the getway to the giveway, God's way of love. A new civilization will take over the earth or come to the earth. And regarding that, we have a booklet called The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. This is also available at ccog.org. But not only can you get it by the literature tab, but if you go below that page, you'll find that we have this have links to this book in just over 100 different languages, in case uh, you're not as comfortable with English or you know people who you think should read this book, uh, whose native language is something other than English. Now getting back to the Apostle uh, John, I want to go to 1 John 3. Starting verse 4. He who says, I know him, does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But he, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know we're in him. He who says he abides him ought also to walk as he himself walked. And of course, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. I'm sorry, I told you 1 John 3. That was 1 John 2, 4 through 6. Now I'm going to go to 1 John 3, starting in verse 18, 19. Apologize for the confusion I just caused. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. We walk in love by doing things that demonstrate love. The Apostle Paul referred to part of it in one place as the gospel of the grace of God in Acts uh, 20, verse 24. But I want to go to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, starting in verse 1. Now, I read later verses, but I want us to go back here. Again, this is known as a love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to burn and have not love, it profits me nothing. A lot of people think if they have knowledge, faith, etc., that they're just fine. But Christians in the end time most of them don't have true Philadelphian love. They don't support the work or do the work that God expects of them. Jesus warned the uh, Laodiceans uh, that they thought that they needed nothing, but he said that they needed to change. 
And, and Paul says that love doesn't uh, puff up. The Laodiceans seem to have had that issue. Anyway, I want to go to Second Thessalonians, chapter three. Something else the Apostle Paul wrote. Starting in verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Many Laodiceans don't think they have to be concerned about what, if any, work to support. Many are worried, for example, and see no reason, for example, to, let's say, support uh, many Africans. Go to 1 John 3, starting in verse 14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I didn't just make this up. Um, I guess I'll add that we in the Continuing Church of God spend a higher percentage of our income on helping poor brethren than any other uh, Church of God that I know of in the top 10 or 20 uh, groups. Uh, but helping the poor is not a priority for most Laodiceans or their churches. I want to read 2 Thessalonians 3.5. You don't have to go there, but Paul wrote, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now that being said, a lot of Laodiceans think they've endured enough. They don't want to risk making the type of changes that Philadelphian love would have them make. Love never fails. And it says that in First uh, Corinthians 13, verse 8. It says, love never fails, but whether prophecies, they will fail. Whether there's tongues, they'll cease. There's knowledge, it'll vanish away, vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is done in part will be done away. And so, you know, we don't know everything now. You can continue in there. It basically says we can only see things a little bit like in a mirror. But we do know that love is important and it's something that we should express. But Jesus warned in Matthew 24, and we're going to go there, we're going to start reading in verse 12, about what was going to happen in the last days. Matthew 12, started, Matthew 24, starting with verse 12, because lawlessness will abound the love of many will grow cold. It's one of the reasons why those of us who teach church eras, such as the Continuing Church of God, and it's one of the reasons I held up this book before, Continuing History of the Church of God, which helps with that. One of the reasons that it is logical to us that there's a sequence in terms of the churches, 
Philadelphia is the one just before the end, which means love the brethren. The Laodiceans, ah, people decide, they decide things are more important. And Jesus warned that the love of many would grow cold. And that's sadly what's happened to the Laodiceans. Sometimes they don't love others, sometimes they don't love the truth enough, sometimes they don't love the work enough, sometimes they love their own pet ideas too much to, to look beyond it. Anyway, Jesus said, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world's witness to all the nations, and, the, and then the end will come. I held up our book before by the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's supposed to be preached to all the nations. Are you truly supporting that? Are you truly supporting the poor, poor brethren? Yes, sadly, love has waxed cold among many in this, in this century. I'd like to read something that the late evangelist uh, of, of Raymond McNair wrote when he was part of the old Radio Church of God. Now, I did uh, slightly know Raymond McNair. I uh, talked to him on uh, one or more occasions. I've met him. And uh, so this is something that he wrote. This is a long time ago. Uh, this was, let me try to see if this is fairly long what I've got here. Uh, in April 1967, in the good news is called Will Your Love Wax Cold? And I'm going to spend a fair amount of time going through this. Not going to, I'll read some of it word for word. But, um, and I'll tell you when I'm no longer using the notes. Or well, sometimes you'll, I'll make some comments that aren't in the notes, of course. Anyway, he writes, What did Jesus Christ forewarn? That during our time, many, even his church, would become calloused, hard, and unsympathetic. Will you be one who lets your love grow cold? How can you be certain this doesn't happen to you? In the Olivet Prophecy, Jesus foretold world-shaking events leading up to the Second Coming. He showed that worldwide hate would lead to wars, famines, pestilence, and widespread earthquakes. Then Christ sounded a fearful warning. All these are the beginning of the sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. Referring to the terrible end-time persecutions, culminating in the Great Tribulation. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and many will be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, and because iniquity will abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Have you taken that warning from your Savior personally? Have you made an inventory of your life lately to make sure you're not guilty of this charge? Christ also solemnly promised the overcomers that he who endures the end, the same will be saved. Speaking of his second coming, Jesus made another warning in all of that prophecy. But, but and if that evil servant still say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming. He begins to smite his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in that day. He looks not for him in an hour he's not aware of and cut him asunder. Matthew 24, 48-51. Is it possible for a servant of God to get careless and begin smiting his own fellow servants? He says, whether or not this means such an evil servant will literally smite fellow servants, or whether it refers to him smiting him with his tongue, one of the cruelest types of injuries, this warning is nevertheless very explicit, pointing to a lack of true, deep love which some exhibit toward their brethren. Then he talks about don't lose your first love. He talks about the church of Ephesus, typifying the apostolic church. That's the first of the seven churches of Revelation. They made a sad mistake by letting their first spiritual glow grow faint. 
And this happened to the very people who heard the inspired messages from the lips of Christ's chosen apostles. Christ rebuked the church of Ephesus for only one sin, because they left their first love. It grieved our Savior very much to see these New Testament Christians let their spiritual love of God for brethren, for God, and for God's work diminish. He wanted to see them keep their first love and increase it. The same applies to us today. What Christ did point out as a solution to this problem? Verse, uh, Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent. Do the work, first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lamp, candle stand out of its place, except you repent. This divine counsel points out the real answer to the problem of those who've left their first love. Do you remember the love, the zeal, and warmth toward God, His people, His work, which you had at the time of conversion? Repent. Get back to the beginning. Confess your wretched condition to God. Ask Him to mercifully forgive you for letting you become this hardened condition. This is why Jesus rebuked the Laodiceans. Then pray for divine strength and guidance so that you may become an overcomer and eventually inherit the place of rulership in the soon coming glorious kingdom of God. And then there's a subheading here called Universal Lack of Natural Affection. What are some of the reasons why people become hardened to the cold, unmerciful attitude, totally lacking compassion? Today's widespread lack of natural affection is worldwide. A cancerous spiritual affliction. And I would add things, uh, you know, abortion, the LGBTQ agenda, etc. And uh, Raymond McNair writes that the seeds of lack of love and compassion often take root early in our lives. Truly, we're living in a perilous times, the latter days, foretold by the Apostle Paul. And he cites 2 Timothy uh, 3, uh, 1 through 3, and talks about them um, uh, not having natural affection. Because this prophecy clearly talks about time when people were going to be self-lovers, but woefully acting in natural affection, which a normal person should have toward his fellow man. They would have extreme hostility towards their neighbors instead of loving their neighbor as themselves. Paul showed this world's leaders and religions don't want to retain God in their knowledge. Romans 1.28. He cites... This is certainly true of most of today's churches, colleges, and man-made institutes of learning. And from when he wrote it to now, the churches have gone even further off, particularly other aspects of Romans chapter 1. He said, talks about that such minds are destitute of real truth. And he cites uh, Romans 1, 29 and 31. Being filled with all unrighteousness, maliciousness, murder, malignity, despiteful, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. He also writes, Such hate-filled minds often display hostility, not only toward their fellow men, but toward their very creator. There are other important reasons for this important, this universal lack of natural affection. Stop, look around you for the real answer. The seeds of ruth, ruthlessness are planted early in life. Uh, in tops of this topsy-turvy world, people are bringing up with killer toys and taught basically how to kill. And I would say also in this topsy-turvy world, they're taught that there's multiple genders and other, other kinds of nonsense stuff. Uh, children raised in our dog-eat-dog society uh, often conclude to survive. They've got to look out for number one. And... Uh, Many become hardened to uh, violence, 
various other things uh, in sexual immorality. He writes, remember, Jesus foretold these things immediately preceding his return. Uh, they'd be like the days of Noah. And in Noah's time, the world was filled with violence. But uh, it's getting worse and worse. We're also seeing cold wars, race riots, muggings, various other types of assaults. In this heartless world, some people love their pets more than they love other people. It said when uh, the Russians first shot uh, a dog in space, a lot of people in Britain were worried about the dog, but when humans went out, they didn't seem to complain so much. <laughs> and he mentions about 40 million people being killed during uh, uh, World War II, including 6 million Jews. It shows how heartless the world can be. And whether we know it or not, he says, we've all imbibed in too freely in this world's ideas and attitudes. We've become tainted by the worldwide lack of natural compassion. But we're not doomed to be it. We're in the world, we're not of it. Then he cites Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the death penalty of the law, but under grace of pardon. Then he says that our Creator provided a means of deliverance for every temptation. Then he cites 1 Corinthians 10.13, which I'll read part in a moment. God, who is faithful, will not suffer you or allow you to be tempted above that which you're able, but with the temptation also make a way to escape. You'll be able to bear it. Now how do you overcome this hardness? He says there's three vital steps to overcome uh, hard-hearted attitude. First, we need to recognize the fact that many in God's church are truly lacking in natural affection. And I said, even when I was in my last uh, Church of God organization, that most of the people there were not Philadelphian. They did not have uh, Philadelphian love. He said, that's the first step in overcoming this uh, uh, disease. Next, we must admit that we lack our lack, we must admit our lack and confess, to God, confess it to God and act Ask our loving Creator to help us overcome this universal lack of compassion of others. We must do our part to overcome this character weakness by drinking into the mind and character of God through prayer and diligent Bible study. We can learn how to overcome this lack of natural affection by carefully studying God's Word and see how great people of the Bible thought and acted, and how they exhibited great love and compassion towards others. And we can see that they showed real godly affection. By diligently studying, carefully following their examples, we can and will overcome this universal spiritual affliction, the gaping lack of natural uh, compassion. Uh, Christ's early life was a perfect shining example, revealing his deep love, mercy, and compassion to all men. And then he's going to he cites Matthew five seven, it says Jesus continually taught that men to have a forgiving, merciful attitude toward their fellow men. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7. God hates cruelty. You can see that in Proverbs 11, 17, and 12, 10. God disinherited, in a sense, two of Jacob's sons because of their cruelty and slaying all men of a certain town when only one was guilty. And then he cites Matthew 6, 14 to 15. You can go there if you want. 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses or sins, neither will your heavenly will your Father forgive your trespasses. The person who is unmerciful toward others is judged harshly by God. And he cites James 2.13. You don't have to go there. For he, the unmerciful person, shall have judgment without mercy, for he has showed no mercy. Christ not only taught mercy and compassion, he practiced it. His ultimate supreme sacrifice was the final capstone when he was crucified or uh, impaled, giving up his life, proving his boundless love and compassion for all humanity. Then he says, notice carefully Matthew 9.36, where Jesus was going through a, a group of people and uh, deeply touched the thought of their spiritual wretchedness. Matthew 9.36, it says, But then when he saw, he, that's Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as a sheep having no shepherd. Christ then told his disciples they should pray that God should send more laborers to the harvest. And I encourage all of you to do that because we need more laborers to harvest today. And then he cites Matthew uh, 14, 14. He says, on another occasion, quote, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved to compassion towards them and healed their sick. Christ performed miracles of multiplying of loaves and fishes because he had a deep feeling for the people because he said he had compo compassion on the multitude in uh, Matthew 15, verse 32. Two blind men near Jericho cried out to Jesus in Matthew 20, 30, have mercy, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Jesus never turned a deaf ear or cry to their help. Verse 34, who Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. On another occasion, Jesus was deeply moved to the sorrow of a widow who had lost her only son. And he cites Luke 7, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Weep not. Jesus then raised her dead son to life out of sure pity for this desperate widow. And one of the more moving examples is this profound concern over the awful calamity that befell the inhabitants of Jerusalem the very ones who later cry out for his blood. He stood on the Mount of Laos, looking rather peaceful-looking at the city of Jerusalem lying below. Then he cites uh, Luke 19, verse 41 to 44. You might want to go there, but I'm going to read over it. Luke 19, starting verse 41. And he was come near. He beheld the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known even you at the least of this in this day, the things which belong to your peace. For the day shall come upon you that your enemies, the Romans, shall cast a trench upon you, encompass you about, and keep you in on every side, and shall lay you even to the ground, and your children with you, and you shall not leave one stone upon another. And by the way, sometimes when I'm hesitating it's because they're using the old King James, and instead of saying these and thou's, I'm trying to update the language a little bit more. And by the way, he said this prophecy was fulfilled with deadly accuracy as recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus. The Romans raised, raised that's R-A-Z-E-D, Jerusalem, butchered and slaughtered many thousands of Jews inhabiting it. And 
And then after Jesus had spent three and a half years going about doing good and healing the oppressed, those were oppressed the devil, he obediently gave he obediently gave himself a supreme sacrifice at the stake at Golgotha. Jesus, even his agonizing death throes, was so filled with love and mercy and compassion, he was able to sum up enough pity to exclaim in Luke twenty three thirty four, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. These are the words of the most noble, self-sacrificing, compassionate man ever born of women. One example for us to follow. Jesus never let his love for the people wax cold. So another shining example uh, was uh, uh, Joseph, Jacob's son. He revealed his love and compassion to his uh, guilt-ridden brethren who had sold him into slavery. And then he cites uh, Matthew, excuse me, Genesis, Genesis 45, starting verse 1. Uh, finally, he says, Joseph couldn't refrain himself from those who stood by him. He cried out, caused everyone to go out from him. He wept aloud. The Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brethren, I'm Joseph. And it says he uh, uh, moreover kissed their brother and, and he wept over them. Was this false modesty? Of course not. And we also see that David cried out to God uh, in Psalm 51. And he cites various parts of this, starting in verse 1 through 10. Have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. Against you and you only I have I sinned and done this evil. Purge me. With hyssop, wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Clean me in heart and renew a right spirit in me. So David uh, truly repented. And uh, we see his uh, deep compassion involving uh, things with his son Absalom. I'm not going to go into that. And I'll skip through these things. But I will read this part. It says, Many of David's psalms are filled with deep emotion. They reveal the mind of a merciful and compassionate person. Uh, David could not praise God enough, and we read about him praising God's law, etc. I'm going to read some of Psalm 103 that's cited here, starting in verse 8. David wrote, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. And hopefully you're merciful. Like the father pities his son, so the Lord pities him that fear pities them that fear him. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon the hills of those who fear Him and to those who remember the commandments and do them. Learn to be compassionate. And he writes, Can you, brother, now see the importance of learning to be more compassionate, especially in this age where there's so little natural affection in the world? If we don't naturally have sympathy and compassion for people, then God... We'll give it to us if we ask for it in faith. Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 22, All things whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive, said the Lord Jesus Christ. We must learn to be soft-hearted, he says, but not soft-headed. And one thing I've said before, particularly in the sermon on sin about doing good, um, we don't need to enable every uh, beggar or person who's trying to use drugs or doesn't want to work or various other things. 
But he also then starts talking about, he says, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, seem to have been rather uncompassionate, well, at that time, hard-boiled men by nature. Christ named them the sons of thunder. Their approach to destruction of life revealed an important incident in Luke 9, 51-56. On this occasion, the Gentile Samaritans would not receive Christ as disciples. And this angered James and John. The sons of thunder. And when they saw this, now he quotes Luke 9, verse 54, they said, Lord, will you that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elias did, Elijah did? They were really, they want to get, teach these Samaritans a lesson or two. Verse 55, 56. But he turned, that's Jesus, rebuked them, saying, You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. Son of man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. And this is why I've held it, one of the reasons I've held this book up multiple times, because a lot of people don't understand God's plan of salvation. They don't understand that God truly loves everyone, and God has a plan to save all that can be saved and offer salvation to everyone, either in this age or the age to come. Now, Randy McNair concludes. A careful study of the epistles of the Apostle John will lead you to the conclusion that he later became filled with much more love and compassion after he was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. His epistles reveal a great deal of love. We see it's possible with God's Spirit to give his children added love and compassion. And then he talks about you know, having a bowels of mercy, and he warns, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 15, of a root of bitterness. And this has happened to some people who had some affiliation with the Church of God, but apparently didn't prosper as well financially or whatever else that they thought should have had happen. And uh, they've left, and they don't have the type of uh, mercy that uh, they should have. And we all need mercy. We all need God's mercy. And he writes, how do we react to sufferings of others? Have you become so callous or hardened that towards suffering you no longer feel any sympathy or empathy toward those who suffer deprivation or physical pain? You know, what if you were born in an extremely poor part of the world, uh, in certain parts of Asia, uh, parts of Africa, or places like Haiti, certain parts of uh, South or Central America, to, to mention a few places, and I'm not trying to skip over places, but whichever, you know, is it their fault that they were born there? Of course not. Was it your fault that you were born in uh, perhaps a more prosperous land? If you were, of course, maybe you were born on this list. Think about that. We must all beware lest we become so hardened in sin we let our love grow cold. We lose our first glow of love, warmth, and spiritual zeal. And he, he writes, I'm going to read this verbatim. I am sometimes appalled to see the hard, critical attitude of some members of God's church toward their own brethren or even people in the world. And I can say I get this from Laodiceans, or maybe not even Laodiceans. Uh, I'm appalled by some of the nonsense and the priorities that they have. We should never say or think it serves him right. He had it coming. We are commanded not even so much to rejoice when our em enemy falls or stumbles, Proverbs 24, 17. One of the best ways to learn compassion is being to have to put yourself 
but to place the other who may be suffering deprivation, embarrassment, shame, or physical pain, which is why I mentioned about being where you were born. Don't judge too quickly, and many people do. Don't condemn. You can't always know the motives behind a person's actions. James 4.11 says, Speak not evil one another, brethren. How can we be sure our love doesn't grow cold? How can we learn more compassion and natural affection? Well, here's how. Realize that we are lacking in affection. Number two, that was number one. Number two, confess our lack to God and ask Him for His love, mercy, and compassion imparted by His precious Holy Spirit. Help us overcome our lack. Diligently search the Scriptures so we can note and follow the example of the holy men of God who did not have, who did have a lot of natural affection and who did show compassion toward their fellow human being. We can overcome through God's help. We can overcome lack of natural affection. With help, we can learn to have more compassion for people. We can really overcome our character weaknesses. If we keep close to God in study and in prayer and fasting, we'll overcome. Brethren, you've seen Christ's warning, the love of many will wax cold. You know what God requires of you. It's up to you, with the help of God, to overcome your lack of natural affection, any lack of compassion on which you developed over the years. If you do what you're supposed to do, your love will not grow cold. If you're willing, if you're willing to let God's Spirit mold you, uh, you can be, have God's very character, which is, which is love, His love and compassion. Well, that's the end of uh, what Ray McNair wrote. And as I mentioned before, in this time of the end, uh, most Christians are going to have their love wax cold, and that's why they're Laodiceans. You know, Laodicea basically is composed of two words that mean people rule, people judge, people decide. Uh, they reject a Philadelphian governance because they think they've got a better idea toward it. Sometimes they'll accept the, the governance or parts of it, that they don't have the work God wants them to have. Uh, because Laodicea is the dominant attitude in this age, Philadelphia is not. Uh, Jesus told the Philadelphians in Revelation 3, starting in verse 10, Because you kept my command to persevere, I'll keep you from an hour of trial which come upon the whole world to test it. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And only to the Philadelphians, the remnant of the Philadelphians, that God promises that protection. You don't have to go there, but Hebrews 13.11 says, let brotherly love continue, which actually means let Philadelphia continue. So we believe there's a remnant of Philadelphia in this Laodicean age. And you know, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. That's what it bades up. And you know, brotherly love needs to continue among those who believe that they're Christian. And perhaps Philadelphia needs to continue because of its emphasis on love. You know, when Jesus uh, Jesus taught, repeatedly talked to Peter in John uh, twenty one seventeen about uh, loving him, and Jesus wanted Peter to realize you don't want to just kind of slightly like somebody, but do what it takes, do what it needs to be done. Now, of course, Jesus also said, taught whoever desires to save his life will lose it, loses his life for my sake, and the gospel will save it. Again, but many have decided they've got other priorities and they don't go the right way. Christians, however, realize they're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and get work to get the gospel of the kingdom of God out. Now, in Revelation 3, 8, the Bible says that the Philadelphians have, have little strength if kept God's word. 
I've gone over this before. The Bible tells us it's not going to be by strength or might, but by God's Spirit. It's one of the reasons why in the Continuing Church of God, well, these aren't all of our books or booklets, but I'll hold these up. There's a bunch of books and booklets that we have. Uh, we're preparing for that time to come. Um, regarding uh, your part in terms of love, I'm going to read something from the old uh, 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 Worldwide Church of God. It says, you know, ongoing love requires work and willpower and determination because human nature is influenced by uh, Satan the devil, the prince of the power of the air. And ongoing love is not what Satan wants you to have. He doesn't want you to have outgoing love. And we need to be use this wisely. The Bible says in James 1, 5, and 6, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Because to all liberally, without reproach. But we need to ask it in faith. And as this article says, by the way, and I've read before, faith, uh, hope, and love. Love is the most important. This article says, love and godly character, that's what love is all what life is all about, and that's true. And for more on that, we have our book of Mystery of God's Plan. Why did God create everything? Why does God make you? We need to persevere. We've got to break old habits. God is love. God's laws are based on love. Uh, we see a couple different types of love mentioned in the Bible. The Old King James sometimes uses the word charity. Uh, the Bible uses the terms agape and filio. Filio mostly comes from the heart. Uh, well, agape say, uh, says mostly comes from the head. Either word can be translated uh, love. Generally speaking, in the love chapter, it's the word agape. In First uh, Corinthians uh, 13. Now, to help you move more towards that, uh, I, this uh, author cites Philippians 4, verse 8. Said, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, there's virtue. Is praiseworthy in anything. Meditate on those. Think about good things, doing good, trying to be helpful. True love seeks its own, it's not self-centered. Some of these things we read before. How to have true love. If you want to live and act in love and goodwill, go to the author of all that's good. The Bible, God of the Bible. Ask him prayerfully to give you the right attitude and show you the right way. Expect him to answer. And keep on giving to you as long as you're willing to give up your old self-centeredness. Follow God's biblical instructions. Behave toward others in love and goodwill. Live by the laws of love. Uh, just like when babies start off, your first steps might not be that successful. You might not be skillful. You might stumble. When we all stumble, dust yourself off, get up, and keep going. Romans 13, 8 through 9, this article cites, Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. There's any other commandment, they're all summed up by this, namely, you shall love your neighbors yourself. It takes work to be outgoing. You won't even think to do it without effort, and it won't be successful even then if you don't stay close to God. Yet it's absolutely required by God. It's a wonderful thing to have. No one's going to enter God's kingdom without it. 
Now is the time to marshal your energy. Make certain you have God's great love. Develop it, radiate it, all the rest of your life. So that was from uh, uh, an article back in uh, 1984. Anyway, love is good for you both in this age and the age to come. The uh, Let's go to the book of uh, John. John 14, starting verse... Uh, I'm going to just read verse 15. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now I want to go to 1 John 15, verse 9. Shouldn't be too far over. As the Father loved me, I've also loved you and abided my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And you know, if we do this, you don't have to go there. Romans 8.28, the Bible says, We know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And in 1 Corinthians 2.9, we see something about, we get a glimpse of the reward for developing this love. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But as is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of men, the thing which God has prepared for those who love Him. I mentioned the commandments. You know, some some have called them a burden, but I'm going to read First uh, uh, Timothy uh, one verse five. Some people don't fully grasp this concept. It says the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. If you're not stealing from your neighbor, killing your neighbor. Uh, Committing adultery, lusting after stuff, lying to your neighbors, stealing from them. Isn't that good for your neighbor? Isn't that showing love? And uh, I mentioned as far as rewards, uh, you don't have to go there, but James 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now I'm in James. Let's go to James uh, 2, verse uh, 8. And uh, this will be the last scriptures I plan on reading. If you... Okay, James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you do well. If you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the, the laws of transgressors. Whoever shall keep the whole law... That stumble one point is guilty of all. He said, "Don't commit adultery." He said, "Don't commit murder." Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, you've been a transgressor of the law. But again, notice that this law is part of the royal law, and it's a law of love. Now, as far as doing the work of God, showing the work, working toward that, it, it's dedicating the true Church of God. We're going to finish the final phase before Jesus comes. We're going to finish a phase of before the Great Tribulation and work on it uh, throughout it. Many people who've brought up in households that are called Christian have been told something about love, but they still don't really know what it is. Various ones don't understand true Christianity, and that Philadelphia is all about love. Love towards God, love towards our neighbor. And possessing really love, a real love of the truth is what all of us as Christians should have. And in this sermon, I've tried to go through some things to assist on how to develop more love. And I'm going to put a link uh, online, at least that's my plan, 
on this article if you need a refresher. And as well as to go over some points I didn't perhaps go over here in this sermon about love. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.